John, the evangelist, reported that the Word became flesh. Matthew, the evangelist, begins his gospel. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Mark begins his account with, This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Finally, Luke begins with the angelic announcement, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Well, we're beginning a brand new series now, and we're starting Christmas early this year. I hope nobody minds that. I know some people are groaning, oh no, Pastor Ron, it's way too early. Do we have to start singing Christmas carols? I want to tell you something. This is the best time of the year. But for so many people, they feel, uh, they feel it's too early, they're groaning, and uh, maybe this is your idea of Christmas, Santa Claus, and Santa Claus with his elves and his reindeer. All these things that, that are supposed to celebrate Christmas but have nothing to do with Christmas at all. Now, uh, we, uh, we know that people are groaning when we talk about Christmas at the midway point through November because people are sick and tired of the commercialization and the monetization of this season. And so for many people, Christmas is void of meaning. There's not a lot of people who understand what Christmas is truly all about. But I want to remind everybody here this morning that the, that the advent, that is the first coming of Jesus Christ to this world, is in fact the beginning of the greatest event in human history. For 33 years, it marks the life of Christ on this earth. He was born, and then when he came to the end of his life here on this earth, he was crucified, put to death, and then he was resurrected from the dead, and then we know that he ascended to the Father. He went up to be with his Father back in heaven. But here's what a lot of people fail to recognize when we discuss the Christmas story, and that is that, that God became flesh, or as John says it, word, word became flesh. Now, many Christians don't understand the significance of the fact that Jesus was both God and man, 100% God, 100% man. That's a, that's a hard thing for us to get our minds and our hearts around. But we'll be discussing this from now to the end of the year. There's, there's so much that you need to understand about who Jesus is. If you will, this, this sermon series is a study in Christology, in which Christology is simply the study of Christ. And it's, it's important that you don't miss any of these because you need to understand who Jesus is. So today we're talking about the Messiah. We're going to be talking about the Virgin. We're going to be talking about the Baptist, John. 
Uh, we're going to be talking about the dragon of, of Christmas. A lot of people don't know about that, but there is a dragon involved in the Christmas story. We're going to be talking about the Magi and so on and so forth. This idea of Jesus being 100% man and 100% God was a question that was of great import to the early church. In fact, there was some confusion on the subject. Some people didn't understand what could that possibly mean and, and, and what do we believe? What is our doctrine on, the position, on, on, on who Christ is? This issue was so important that Emperor Constantine convened a council. It's called the, the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., he called together the bishops from around the world at that time. There are 300 bishops that all gathered together at Nicaea to discuss who Jesus is, to discuss who God is, to discuss the idea of the Trinity. Who is God? Now, we know that Jesus Christ himself, in the, in the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, tells us to go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we recognize that there is an equality in God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But they needed to come together to discuss this so that they understood it fully. There is a, a man by the name of Arius, who's a bishop from Egypt, and he was teaching that Jesus, the Son, was not equal to God the Father. In fact, he believed that the Son came out of the Father. And we call this the heresy of Arianism. As Arius was vigorously teaching and defending his position, the man who, who would become who we know as St. Nicholas. Everybody knows who St. Nicholas is? We sometimes call him Santa Claus. The Claus is the, is the short form of Nicholas. He became more and more agitated as he listened to Arius say that Jesus was not equal to God the Father. So finally what happens is Nicholas, he cannot stand it anymore. He cannot stand what Arius is saying. St. Nicholas, he believed that, that Arius was attacking the person of Jesus Christ. And it so outraged Nicholas that he got up, crossed the room, and he slapped Arius across the face. Now, that's a St. Nicholas nobody hears about at Christmas time. You see him as a jolly old, old man in red pajamas, talking to children, drinking Coca-Cola, and eating people's cookies. But here's, here's the true St. Nicholas. He was not going to stand for this attack on the person of Jesus Christ. Was St. Nicholas correct in coming against Arius? Well, Understand what Jesus said about himself. Jesus said about himself in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Why did he do it? Why did he slap Arius across the face? Because he understood what was at stake. From now to the end of this year, we're going to talk about the importance of this doctrine of who Jesus is. Jesus is our Savior. He is our King. He is our Lord. He is the Son of David. He is the Son of Abraham. 
but he's God. You need to understand that. You cannot call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ and deny that aspect of who Jesus is. And you're going to see why through the course of this message, but right to the end of the year. So we're beginning today with the glorious telling of the coming of the Messiah, and we see it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now watch this. This is how the New Testament begins. Matthew 1, verse 1. How many know that Matthew is the first gospel in the New Testament? And it begins with these words. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. And then Mark 1, 1 begins with his account. This is the good news. By the way, does everybody know that good news is, means gospel? It means the same thing. Gospel, good news, they're synonymous uh, terms. It means the same thing. This is the gospel. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, before I go any further, I need to remind everybody of something, because this is what I know. When many of you are reading through your Bible, you're, you're, you've got a, a goal to get through it, to get to the end. And in speeding through and trying to get to the end of, of your reading, you, you miss things. And so you need to see that the beginning of these gospels are these very important words. If you don't understand that these gospels are about Jesus the Messiah, then you really won't know or understand what the gospels are about. The whole gospel of Matthew is about Jesus the Messiah. Now, you notice that it's not just Jesus, but it's Jesus the Messiah. It's an important title there that you and I need to understand. And then we read in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to, uh, 31 to 33. And this is the angel has appeared to Mary, and he says, Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Who is the most high? Well, it's God himself. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Again, we recognize in in this recollection in the Gospel of Luke who Jesus is. Again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's all about Jesus, understanding who he is, understanding the work that he has come to this earth to do. And then we get to John chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, the word became flesh. How how did he become flesh? Well, folks, he was born in a manger uh, about 2,000 years ago. What is this saying to us? Well, God has sent his message to us. That is, he has sent a revelation of himself to us. In John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, what does that mean? Well, John is, is, is speaking with the Greek in mind, understanding that word logos. Logos is the word that's used here. There's two words in Greek for, for word. One is rhema. Some of you have heard that word. 
It's been terribly twisted and misunderstood by the word of faith preachers. They totally have misused that word. And, and if you have grown up with that or if you've heard that at some point, uh, someone might say to you, have you received an, a rhema word from God? I want you just to kill that idea. It's not biblical. It's not doctrinally sound. The other word is logos. Now, in the Greek mind, when, 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 he, when, when a Greek hears these words, John talking about the logos of God, the word of God, the Greek would have understood that the logos was not just a word, but it was a message. It was all of the message or all of the philosophy, if you will, all of the thinking, all of the will and the purpose of God was expressed in Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus says, if you know me, then you know the Father. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God. If you know me, Jesus says, then you know the Father. And this is why he says in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. So it's critical that you understand this. Because this is what John wants us to understand. And it's what Matthew and Mark and Luke want us to understand. They want us to know who Jesus is. Jesus is a revelation of God. Now, all these gospels, watch this, all these gospel writers are telling us the gospel of the coming of the Messiah. By the way, the word Messiah in Greek is Christos, where we get the word Christ, means the same thing. Messiah, Christos, it means the same thing. It means anointed one. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that every king of Israel was what? Anointed before he was made the king. The priests were, the high priest was anointed before he became the high priest. So he is the anointed one of God. He's the one appointed by God for his people. And when the Roman soldiers were mocking Jesus and, and, and hammering that sign to the top of the cross. Here's Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. Ha, 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 ha. They were actually prophesying something that was true. Jesus Christ is the King of the Jews. But you're going to see he's more than just the King of the Jews. We'll see this in just a moment. But first, understand this. Those of us who are not Jewish, we don't fully comprehend the magnitude we don't understand the implications of this announcement that Jesus is the Messiah. Understand this. This Messiah is somebody that the Jewish people have been waiting for for thousands of years. He is the fulfillment. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this great promise of God. This Messiah holds thousands of years of history and hope and prophecy that ultimately culminated in Jesus Christ. In other words, Christ is a fulfillment of what the Jewish people have been waiting for for thousands of years. Now, we don't understand that. We don't understand the significance of this. This is the one that they've been waiting for. And each of the gospel writers say, folks, it's a new day. He's here. He's arrived. What we've been waiting for, the one we've been hoping for, the deliverer, the savior, 
the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, he's here now. There is no better news. Unfortunately, the Jewish people didn't understand the full significance of who Jesus is. And I'm going to share with you this, this morning what the significance of that is. But understand this. The hope of a deliverer is predicted in the Old Testament over 350 times. Did you know that? Jesus coming on the scene, Jesus doing what he did was not an accident of history. In Old Testament scripture, there are over 350 passages in the Old Testament that predict the coming of Jesus, even telling us what would happen in his life. I haven't got time to go into that this morning, but it's something that you can research yourself. It's, it's no secret. It's not something that's hidden from you. Anybody can learn this. 350 times in the Old Testament. In fact, listen to this. The Old Testament is so clear about who Jesus is that when Jesus, is, after his resurrection, is walking on the road to Emmaus with his disciples, the disciples, they didn't even recognize him because remember, they thought he was dead. What does he do? He starts explaining the gospel to his disciples using what? Just the Old Testament. The gospel, my friends, is in the Old Testament, and it's summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. So, each of the gospel writers gives us new insights into whom this Messiah is. So I want to just quickly review those four gospel statements about the Messiah. The first one is Matthew 1.1. And you'll notice that it says, this is the record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David. Let's just stop right there. And of course, we understand that this is, in fact, a fulfillment of what God said to David in 2 Samuel 7.16. God says to, to David, and your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Did everybody catch that? So understand that the children of Israel, the Jewish people, would have understood that when God spoke these words to David, that God was speaking about a coming king, a coming Messiah. And so look at this. These are, this is Jesus' pedigree. Everybody understands what a pedigree is? We want to know who Jesus is and does he really fit the bill? Does he tick all the boxes? And we begin with, yes, he is a descendant of David, which we're going to talk about more in the weeks to come. And Jesus is the one that is going to sit on this eternal throne where Jesus will reign forever. And then the next thing we see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Now, why is that important? Again, we see a fulfillment of a prophetic word given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. And God says to, to, to Abraham, and, the, and through your offspring, Abraham, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. What does this mean, folks? God says this to, to to Abraham two times. 
through, through your offspring, all the nations will be blessed. What does this mean? Well, it would be through Abraham's offspring that the Messiah would come to this world. Now, some people think that when we talk about the whole world being blessed through the seed of, of Abraham, we're, we're talking about all the Nobel Prize winners that are Jewish. That's not it at all. There's one thing that matters, my friends, and that is it's through the Jewish people that our Messiah has come to us. Understand that. Very, very important. And then we get to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And again, he says, this is the gospel. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. And he calls him the son of God. Let everybody see that. Jesus is called the son of God. This is a fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied in chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Read it. Mighty God and the Prince of Peace. This, Isaiah says, is who the Messiah will be. He is God. He is God. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, if Jesus is equal with God, why is he called the Son of God? If you want to know the answer to that, you've got to come next week, if that's okay with you. I want you to see something else. In Matthew, or John chapter 1, verse 14, it says... Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him what? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Is it any wonder then, when Arius was saying that Jesus was not God, that St. Nicholas got up and slapped him across the face? It's exactly what he needed. I'm going to tell you, it was because of men like St. Nicholas and Athanasius who said, I don't care what anybody says, I know the Bible makes it clear that Jesus is God. And he, and he became known as Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world, because he, was the, he, was, he and St. Nicholas, they were the only ones that stood firm on this. And finally, the, bishop, the bishops began to understand that Jesus Christ, as revealed in Scripture, is in fact God. And this has become our doctrine. This has become our belief. And as time has gone on, we see how solid a foundation our Christian life, our Christian faith is. Now, I just need to say this to you this morning, because some people really struggle with this. I remember talking some years ago, I was at a senior citizen's home, and one of the elderly Jewish residents said to me, you're a pastor, aren't you? I said, yes, I am. And he said, you know, Jesus never really said that he was God. I said, what made you say that? Well, I don't remember him actually saying he was God. It was quite a shock to him. He, he respected Jesus. He thought Jesus was a wonderful teacher, a wonderful example, much like Mahatma Gandhi, a wonderful teacher, but no, he could not accept the fact that he was God. Even the Quran teaches that Jesus is a prophet, but not God. Now listen to me. You can't say that Jesus is a good teacher if Jesus says about himself, I and the Father are one. 
This is why the Jewish people wanted to stone Jesus to death because they knew what Jesus was saying about himself. He's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. They wanted to stone him for blaspheming. You can't say that Jesus is a good teacher if Jesus is lying, can you? As C.S. Lewis would say, Jesus was either a liar or he was a lunatic out of his mind or he actually was the Lord. The only way that you could say that he is a good teacher is if, in fact, what he said was true. If what he said was not true, he's not a good teacher, he's a liar, and he doesn't deserve our fealty, doesn't deserve our praise, he doesn't deserve our service. This is critical to our Christian faith. And I can tell you, that the Bible tells us over and over again that Jesus is God. Now, this is very important to understand this. It's very important to understand that our Messiah is, in fact, God. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to understand, and I'm not saying that it's even easy to accept. Unless the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see the truth, you cannot see it. And this is what we're told, this is what the Apostle Paul tells us that the natural mind can't receive spiritual truth. But it's a glorious day when God, by his spirit, opens your eyes to see. And so we go on to the passage in Luke. And the angel says to Mary, you, Mary, will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, which means Yah saves. Who is Yah? Well, it's God. This is the the Hebrew way to say it. That's what Jesus means. Yah saves. Jesus is the Savior. Again, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 62, 11. The Lord has sent this message to every land. Tell the people of Israel, look, your Savior is coming. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. Jesus is the Savior. Now, can I just remind everybody of something? God knew that we needed a Savior. If God thought we needed a scientist, he would have sent us a scientist. If God thought we needed more education, he would have sent us an educator. If God thought we needed a psychologist, he would have sent us a psychologist. But the fact of the matter is, is that we, the Bible tells us, are perishing. We are dying in our sin. How do we deal with the sin problem? And this is something that not a lot of religions will address And if they do address it, they don't address it sufficiently. What do we do with this sin in our hearts? And how do I know that this sin is gone? How do I I get rid of this sin so that I can go to heaven? How can I be sure that when I die, I will go to heaven? You see, this is the gospel. This is the good news about Jesus Christ. Jesus says to Nicodemus, one of the teachers of Israel, a famous teacher, his name is Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus and he knows there's something special about Jesus. And he says, how can I enter the kingdom? He wants to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, you have to be born again. Nicodemus says, well, does this mean I gotta go back into my mother's womb and then be born again? No, duh. 
You can't do that. Jesus says you must be born from above. What does this mean? Well, some of you learned the verse in Sunday school. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes, whoever believes in the son will not perish, but have eternal life. What does that mean? Well, folks, listen, Jesus came to this earth. He is word made flesh. He came to this world to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin. Somebody's got to pay the penalty. Why? Well, before Adam and Eve ever sinned, what did God say to them? In the day that you eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the day you will surely die. The death penalty was the punishment for sin. Who's going to save us? Who's going to deliver us from this penalty of sin? Well, it has to be somebody who's perfect. It can't be a man like you and I because every one of us are born tainted by sin. If you've ever been a parent and you've ever had a two-year-old, you know that we are born with original sin. That's who we are. And it's for this reason, my friends, that Jesus had to be God because only one who was perfect, only one who was without blemish, only one who was pure could take the penalty, could suffer the penalty to take away our sin. Now watch this. You and I, based on what Jesus has done for us, can have the assurance of eternal life. That's what John 3.16 says, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have what? Eternal life. It's not based on what I do. It's based on what Jesus does. My friends, this is why I, as a young boy, even before my parents had anything to do with it, was why I, as a young boy, having heard the gospel message about Jesus Christ, this is why I put my faith in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. I needed a Savior. And that's why God has sent us a Savior. His name is Jesus. Yah saves. God saves. And this is a fulfillment, again, of a prophecy in Isaiah. But look at this, folks. There's even more about the Messiah that you need to understand. And it's in uh, Luke 1, 32b to 33. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. We're talking about the kingdom of God. When, when you became a Christian, you don't know this, but you now have become a citizen of the kingdom of God. You've become a citizen of heaven. This world is not your home anymore. This world is not the thing that occupies your, your desires, your longings, your pursuit. What, what occupies your pursuits, your interests, your desires, your longings, is of a different world, and it's called the kingdom of God. So how do I respond to this? Because 
what, are we, what we do know about the Messiah is that he is the king of, a, of another kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world. It's interesting, if you go back in history and look at the persecution of Christians, you will see that the reason Christians were persecuted is because they heard, because the rulers, the, the, the pagan rulers, the, the non-Christian rulers, they saw Christianity as a threat, as a revolutionary message. It is, isn't it? And this is why China right now is clamping down on Chinese Christians. They are going through terrible persecution. Now, there's no Chinese person that, is, that is, is, is protesting against the government. They just want to serve Jesus. And to serve Jesus means that you obey him, that he comes first. But the emperor of China, let's call him what he is, he doesn't want God to come before him. And he, and he therefore is persecuting Christians. They see the kingdom of God as a challenge to the kingdom of China. Did you get that? And by the way, it's not just in China. We're seeing it around the world. You know, Chinese pe or Christian people are the most agreeable. I mean, I'm talking about true Christians. Please, there's some people have this idea, this notion in, the, in their mind that, that that Christianity was represented by the Crusades that happened where, where so-called Christian knights were going around slaughtering Muslims and slaughtering Jewish people. Those are not Christians. They're people who are acting like acting in the name of Jesus, but they were not. Could you see Jesus butchering people, killing people? Listen, a person who's a Christian is somebody who imitates Jesus. So there's a lot of people who are what we would call nominal Christians. They're Christian in name, but not in fact. A true Christian is somebody who imitates the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus did not come to kill people. He came to be killed. Did you get that? Jesus has called us to follow him. That's our king. That's our Messiah. That's who he is. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond to the fact that Jesus is God and he's king? Well, folks, let me just remind you of something. The Messiah, in the mind of the Jew, was the, was the promised deliverer of Israel. Israel, from day one, almost from day one, was constantly being attacked. And they were in Egypt, and they were under Pharaoh's mighty hand. Pharaoh, Pharaoh was cruel to them, and you know the story, till finally they were delivered out of Israel, or out of, uh, out of uh, Egypt, and God said, we're going to take you to your own kingdom, your own land. And throughout Israel's history, they've been under attack. Now, we see them under Babylonian attack. We see them uh, here in the Gospels. At this point, they are now being occupied by Rome. And so in the Jewish mind, the Messiah, when he would come, would deliver them from the occupying nation. And at this point, it's Israel. Now, Israel knew that they were God's chosen people, and they believed that they were superior to all the peoples of the earth because of who their God is. Their God was, was none other than Yahweh. And because Yahweh 
adopted them as his people, they believed that they were superior and greater than all the nations. In fact, they despised the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Anybody who's not Jewish. But here's the thing. The Jewish people, like people today, they don't know what their real problem was. They didn't know what their real problem is. They believed that their real problem was the pesky Gentiles. That's us. The pesky Gentiles who, who, who are sinful and wicked. They believed that Rome, the occupiers that came from Rome, remember the, the Roman governor, Pilate? He was ruling over the land of Israel. They thought this was a great blasphemy because the land didn't belong to Rome. It belonged to God and belonged to the people of God. They believed the tax collectors were wicked, and that was their real problem. And they believed that, 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 that the sinners in society and the lawbreakers, this, these are the real problems in our nation. They believed the poverty and the lack of food and the lack of prosperity, all these things. That was their real problem. Well, Israel, like most people today, they could come up with a whole list of problems, things that they believed the Messiah would deal with. And they would think that their real problems were the Gentiles, was Rome, was the tax collector. Rome, by the way, was taxing Israel. Some people say up to 60% of their income, maybe even more. And to make it worse, it was, there were Jewish people who sided with Rome. They were called traitors. And they would take the collection, the tax collection, from the people of Israel, and then they would actually take an extra tax for themselves and put it in their pocket. And that's why the tax collectors were hated so badly. But folks, this is not their real problem. Rome was not the real problem. Caesar was not the real problem. Pilate was not the real problem. It wasn't the lack of food that was a real problem. It wasn't the lack of prosperity that was a real problem. You know, we in our, in our generation, we have our list of problems. I went and Googled this, the, the, top, the top problems listed in society today. And, and let me just share with you some of them. Some people believe that their real problem is that they're poor. And some people feel that the real problem is that they don't have a good job. The real problem is that they failed. They failed or they made mistakes. And, and some people feel that their past is the real problem. You know, if I didn't have that terrible past, I would have a better today. Some people believe their husband is a problem or their wife is a problem. Some people believe that their socioeconomic level is the real problem. If I was on a different socioeconomic level, things would go better for me. Some people believe that it's their crazy family that is their real problem. And by the way, isn't it true that the crazy family members always come out at Christmas? Some people think it's my lack of a boyfriend or my lack of a girlfriend. Some people think it's a lack of safety or security. Some people believe it's their looks. If I look better, if I was more handsome, if I was more beautiful, that life would be better for me. Some people believe it's their gender. They were born with, they were born with the wrong gender, and if I could just get my, my sex changed, I'd be happy. Some people believe that if they had better education, if I had more education, that that would improve my situation in life, but that's my real problem. Think, some people think it's their ethnicity. 
ethnicity, while others think that this sense of emptiness and loneliness, that's my real problem. Some people believe it's genetics. If I wasn't born into this family, then I wouldn't have all these genetic problems that all my family has had. And some people, they think that their real problem is a lack of money. And if I just had more money, if I could just come to Canada, if I could just come to the USA, then things would be better. And some people feel that it's their grief. They've gone through such terrible grief in their life. And if I didn't have this grief, and if I didn't have these health problems, and, and if I didn't have this upbringing, this terrible upbringing, and if I had a, been born to different parents, and if I had more opportunity, and the temp temptation that I'm going through. Nobody experiences the temptation that I had. If I didn't have this temptation, I would have a better life. And if I wasn't so bored, and the list goes on. My friends, these are not the real problem. These are symptoms of a deeper problem. Your real problem, my friends, is that you have been created by God in his image. And the only way that you and I are going to know a freedom from the problems of life is if you and I learn what it means to surrender to the King of Kings, our Messiah, the Anointed One. If we learn what it means to obey him and to do his will on earth as it is in heaven, that, my friends, is the beginning of transformation in your life. I have people telling me all the time, Pastor Alan, you just got to join us in our cause. You got to join our social justice cause. Do you know how many different social justice causes there are? There are literally hundreds, some would say thousands. I have had a debate about this with people. And I'm trying to say this, is that Jesus Christ did not come into this world to conquer social problems. He came into this world to conquer our real problem, and it's a condition of your heart and mine. This is our problem. We need Jesus Christ to save us from our sin, from our self-centeredness. This is our problem, my friends. Whatever problem you think you have, I'm gonna tell you what your real problem is. Your real problem is that you have not yet learned what it is to yield, to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your real problem is that you need to be reconciled to God. And the only one who can reconcile you to God the Father, the only one who can make you right in the sight of God is Jesus Christ. He's the answer. He's the solution to every one of your problems. Did you get that? Pastor Allen, do you have a scripture that you could give us to, to, to prove this? Because some of you are sitting here thinking, well, that's just Christianity. You're just, you're just you're pushing your ideas. Well, listen to what Jesus himself says. Jesus says, seek. And by the way, that word in Greek, seek, is go on seeking, be seeking. In other words, it's something that never stops. You're constantly, constantly focused on seeking first the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? It's the rule of Jesus. Jesus Christ the king ruling in your hearts. And otherwise, in other words, what Jesus is saying here is go on focusing on doing the will of the king. Listen, every problem that you face in your life can be traced back to the fact that you have not yielded to the king of kings. Would anybody agree with that? There's one or two of us. That's our problem. If you want to understand what it is to be saved, to be set free, 
to be delivered. That's what Israel was looking to the Messiah for, to be delivered. But what they didn't understand is that the deliverance was not a physical deliverance, it was a spiritual deliverance. It's not that they need to be delivered from Rome or from Babylon or from any enemy. They needed to be delivered from themselves, from their sin. That's our problem. We don't want to submit to the King of Kings. We don't want to submit to the Messiah. We want to do our own thing. We, we don't want to say with Jesus, Father, not my will, but thine be done. We want to say, God, my will be done, and I want you to help me get my will done. Folks, that's really what word of faith teaching is. God, this is my will, now I want you to make this happen. It's blasphemous. True Christianity says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. This is, this is your problem, the source of all your problems is that you don't understand who the Messiah is, and you don't understand that when you submit to the Messiah and do his will, that's when you start coming out of the fog. That's when you start coming out of the pit, the miry clay, if you will. That's what the Messiah has come to do, to set us free, to give you eternal life, to restore your relationship to the Father, to deliver you from yourself, Understanding that yourself is your real problem. Now, come to God the Father in repentance. That's what Jesus is, that's what his message is for us today. Come and repent. Come and turn from your wicked ways. Come and turn from your own ways. Come and turn away from the way you're walking and go towards God. How do you do that? Well, by turning to Jesus by seeking first the kingdom of God above all else. Watch this. And live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Did you see that? Most churches now are preaching sermons on how to do this and how to do that, how to have a good marriage, how to have a good job, how to be a good father, how to be a good mother, how to be a good friend, how to do this and how to do that. Scrap all that. You only need one message. Surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ and all your needs will be met. All your problems will be solved. Why? Because you focused on Jesus and Christ alone. That's what it means to be a Christian. Every day, every moment, your focus is on Jesus Christ and doing what he would do. Pastor Allen, how do I know what to do? Well, that's why he's given us the Bible. That's why you need to read the Gospels. You need to read what Jesus teaches us. You need to know what the Messiah wants of you. And my friends, once you have yielded to Jesus Christ, then you'll discover the joy and the wonder of having the Messiah as your Messiah. I can say to you today, Jesus is my Messiah. And because he's Messiah, my Messiah, guess what? My life is wonderful. My marriage is wonderful. My kids are wonderful. Why? Because our focus is on following the teachings of Messiah. Now, I always quoted Matthew 6.33 as my favorite verse, but I no longer do that. Now I have to give you verse 34 as well. Because here's where so many of us get off track. We, the minute we have a problem, what do we start doing? Well, Jesus tells us, so don't worry about tomorrow. Your problems, your difficulties, your struggles get your focus off of God and onto your problems. Jesus says what? Keep your focus on Jesus. 
Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has its enough worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. What's Jesus saying? You, you and I are so tempted to focus on our problems, on our difficulties, on our struggles. And God is saying, focus on Jesus. Focus on Christ and on Christ alone. Seek to do his will. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. It's the most important thing that you are going to do as a Christian. There's nothing more important. And the minute you stop focusing on Jesus is the moment the troubles start again. It's the moment that Pandora's box is open and now you're facing all kinds of problems. Why? Because you've got your eyes off of Jesus. Jesus, our Messiah, is our hope. And Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Do you want peace in your life? Of course you do. Of course I do. Get your eyes on Christ and say, Jesus, my main focus, my main purpose in life is to do exactly what you tell me to do. And if Jesus says to forgive, forgive others your sins, you forgive them. You say, Pastor Allen, hold on a minute there. I got to stop you right there. You don't know what people have done to me. You know what? I, obviously, I care for you, and I care about what people have done to you. But I'm telling you, you got to do what Jesus says. Jesus says what? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. You do what the master tells you to do. And you begin to experience the abundant life that Jesus has promised. And not just the abundant life, but the eternal life. And so I can stand before you today and tell you without reservation, without doubt, that when I die, I'm going straight into the presence of Almighty God because I put my faith in Jesus Christ, the perfect one who died on the cross and was resurrected. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof, is the evidence that you and I are going to have eternal life. Hallelujah. Would you stand with me, please? Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for your presence here. We thank you for your word. We thank you, O oh God, for sending us the Messiah. Help us to recognize today, Lord, that, that the Christmas story is the greatest story ever told. It, it speaks of a Messiah who has come to this earth to take the penalty for our sin. We thank you that because he was sinless, the grave couldn't hold him down, and he came back to life because he was the perfect man, because he was God. Father, fill our hearts this morning with a wonder, with a joy. As we go from this place, may we go with a, with a, with a, uh, with a joy in our step, knowing, Father, that we belong to you, knowing, God, that our sins are forgiven. Father, if there's any here yet who have not yet surrendered their lives to you, Father, would you do a work by your spirit? And when you open their eyes to see the truth, that they may be set free in Jesus' name, that they may have eternal life through Christ. And God, we commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me? Yeah. To the person beside you say, Merry Christmas. <laughs>